Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the director of Art and Worship. It's Easter Sunday, and I'm not going to say a lot. We kept the gathering intact for the podcast, and I hope that you enjoy it. We talk about how there's tragedy in the story of Jesus's crucifixion, but it's actually found in the life and death of Judas. But it might not be what you think. What happens to our hearts when we retreat into hopelessness, and how might the resurrection of Jesus actually lead us back to hope? These are the thoughts that we explore this Easter Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Come on, put your hands together. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Keep 
Y'all may be seated. How y'all doing? You good? You good? Happy Easter. Happy Easter. You know, I know um, folks from certain church traditions will say, he is risen. risen Praise the name of Jesus. Not one I'm used to will just say, he got up (laughs) with all power in his hands. And then the musician will put me in like E flat and then, you know, we'll have a praise break. It's fine. But anyway, I see so many new faces. We're so glad that you're here with us today at South Bend City Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Zach, and I serve on the pastoral staff here, and we just welcome you. We welcome you, we welcome you, we welcome you. We welcome you once, we welcome you twice. We welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Take me back to 10 years old when they would make me do the welcome at church. It's fine. It's fine. You know, one thing that I love about South Bend City Church, not only us being a Jesus-centered community, you know, we operate through our mantras, and one of them is everyone an icon. Now, growing up, I'm a pastor's kid. You know, I guess that's why I'm just so comfortable talking to y'all like this, because they would make me go up and say things. But the church slogan for New Community Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, 707 169th Street. (laughs) We are the church where everybody is somebody. There's no big eyes and no little U's. And that right there is just another way of saying everyone an icon. Amen? Amen. Everybody in this room is iconic. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're iconic. We give God praise. Now, I'm going to see if some of y'all remember the last time I did announcements you know, what to say after I say this phrase. These are your morning announcements. Govern yourselves. Yes, govern yourselves. Okay, on May 7th, somebody say May 7th. We will be having our new to South Bend City Church table right up there in the mezzanine after the second gathering. Now, there will be a virtual new to South Bend City Church table on May 8th. Say May 8th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Not Central, but Easter. Easter, Eastern Standard Time. Cool? Okay, also on May 7th, we will be having our baptism services here at South Bend City Church. You go on the website, you sign up, there'll be some questions, anything that you need to know, you fill in the registration, and we will make sure that you have everything that you need for that day if you want to be baptized. Sound good? Good. Okay. Last but certainly not least, I want to encourage all of you all to give. Give to southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. You know, we are so appreciative of how generous you all are as a community. And in order to keep doing what we're doing to the caliber that we're doing it, we need some money. So (laughs) I'm going to just be real. I'm going to just be real with y'all. Y'all can handle it. Y'all can handle it. I, I, I know it can get real, real different, real difficult. But seriously, um, if you feel it in your heart, give, okay? Okay. Um, I think that's all that I have. These are your morning announcements. You have governed yourselves. God bless you. I love you. Thank you, Zach. I think we might have Zach do the invitation to give every week. (laughs) Hey, I'm Jason. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. We are honored that you are here. It is Easter. It's a good day. Uh, To help us situate Easter in its story, to take today's celebration and put it in context, we thought we would actually take one step back and remind ourselves where we've been over the last few weeks of Lent and through Holy Week and Good Friday, not to wallow in that, but to remember that today's celebration is located in a story that that begins with a reckoning around loss and brokenness, and it's a response to those things. It's a story about what God does in the wake of those things. So let's back up just a step. 
Uh, throughout Lent, it's been our practice to receive the Eucharist every week on Sundays, and we thought we would do that again today. Uh, we were just here a couple of days ago on Good Friday, uh, coming to the table for this sacred meal, and we'll do that again to root ourselves in where we have been. Uh, we know we've got a lot of new faces today. You might be wondering how our community approaches the Eucharist table. Uh, first of all, for us, anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is welcome there, deeply, radically welcome there. So it would be our sacred honor uh, to greet you at the table if you want to come and be a part of that today. Uh, when we get to that point in the gathering, I'll just kind of talk you through the mechanics now so that it's clear when we get there in a few minutes. Uh, but at that moment, I'll, I'll serve those who are going to serve you. And then once they've had a chance to take their place at the four tables in the corners on the main floor and also up in the mezzanine, uh, once they have their, their place, you're welcome to get up out of your seat and go forward to receive. Uh, when you do that, you can simply hold out a hand when you get to the table, and somebody will put a piece of gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free, dairy-free bread in your hand and remind you the body of Christ broken for you. Hold on to it. Don't eat it yet. Step over. Somebody will hold out a cup, and in the cup is juice, but they'll remind you the blood of Christ shed for you. And you can take the bread and dip it in that cup and then take and eat that, and that'll be our practice today. Uh, if you would like to be a part of this, but you're not able to make your way to the table, no problem. As soon as the lines have wrapped up, if you want to just raise a hand, or if you can't raise a hand, if you want to ask somebody next to you to raise a hand, uh, our servers will be on the lookout for you, and they'll come to you, and they'll bring you those elements. Before we do that, though, uh, we're going to take uh, a moment with a song uh, to express a, a certain kind of prayer that a lot of us have been praying uh, over the last several weeks of Lent as we ask God to do something about the world that we are living in and the lives that we are dealing with. And so we'll start there as a sort of meditation before we come to the table. On a night that we remembered this past week, Jesus was with his friends sharing a meal. And there in that room, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it for them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And later in that meal, he took a cup. And he said, this is the cup of a new promise, of a new covenant, of a new enduring faithfulness forged in my blood. This is the cup of promise that says that God's love will not be extinguished. God's faithfulness to you will not end. Take and drink. I'll pray for these elements, and as I do, I'll ask those who are going to serve you to come forward and join me on the stage. And then once I've prayed for these things and then served them, you'll be free if you'd like to get up out of your seat and go to the table. Loving God, we pray that these elements would be for us today. Your body broken and given for us and for the world. We pray that we would know your solidarity with us in suffering and brokenness, and that as we experience that solidarity, we would taste your love. Uh, meet us in these elements and let them be for us your life and our presence now. I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.
I had dinner with a friend this week, and the conversation that ended up being a part of that dinner is a conversation I find myself having a lot lately. Not the detail on it, but the underlying theme of it. I'll tell you the detail first, and then I'll explain what I mean about the theme. The detail was this friend of mine, he just sort of feels stuck professionally, feels that at his age and with his background, he's kind of got all he can get professionally and there's no way out, but he doesn't like what he's doing and it's not providing very well for himself. Uh, in his 20s, there was a lot of sort of finding his way and maybe the reason he related to me is it took him a long time to graduate from undergrad and it took me eight years to graduate from undergrad, including <laughs> four years of full and a half, four, four years of Four and a half years of full-time schooling, uh, which explains the student loans that I'm still paying down. Maybe he sensed some solidarity with me there. I don't know. Um, but we were working through that feeling of, like, stuckness. And underneath it, these aren't words that he used, but something I heard coming through those words. It's a little something like this. It's like, uh, what have I done? You know that moment where you look at the work of your own hands in the world, where you look at the results of your own efforts in the world, where you look at some things that you've gotten wrong, or at least you feel you've gotten them wrong, and then you look at where you are now in, in light of all of that, and you say, like, what have I done, right? That's a conversation I, I keep having with people. And in it, there's a kind of fatalism, a fear of permanence, a fear that like what I've done, what I've broken, what I've put out in the world, what I've shaped in the world, what I've done with my life, that it's sort of, it, it has led to a conclusion that I can't get out of, and now this is where I am and who I am, and I'm stuck with it. And I say I've been having that conversation a lot lately because I've been hearing it not just at the personal, although I have over and over again. I've been hearing it at the professional, people working at their professional lives and feeling like they, they just... There's a, there's a permanence and an inevitability to where they are now and they can't get out of it. I've been hearing it in people's relational lives and in their marriages or at the end of their marriages. And I've been hearing it in our communities and our neighborhoods. And I've been hearing it as we reflect on what we have done and what we've built or more accurately what we have broken in the world and the way that we see it in our politics and the way that we see it in the headlines. There seems to be this sort of undercurrent of like, what have I done? What have we done? And underneath that, I hear a kind of a fear of fatalism. Like, that's it, this is all I am, this is all we are, this is all that's gonna happen, this is just where we are and we're stuck with it, right? I raise all of that now because as I was there, I was at Oyster Bar that night talking to my buddy. Uh, as I was there uh, trying to hear him over the noise at the bar <laughs> and we were talking about this, I also heard another, another thing inside. It was a sort of turning of my attention, a sort of awareness in my heart uh, of a character who features in the story that we tell this week and how much common ground I feel between this character and my friend and all of us. Now, when I show you the character I have in mind, it's going to feel harsh for a moment, but you've got to hang with me through the whole sermon, okay? <laughs> Promise me you're going to hang with me through the whole sermon, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you who I'm talking about. This is in Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Next slide. Oh, sorry, that was, that was it on that one. My bad. <laughs> sorry, Lori. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about Judas Iscariot, and that might seem like a strange reference as I refer to my friend. And I also said this is all of us in some way, but hang with me. I want to work this out for a bit. Judas has become a fascinating character to me in this story because the more I learn about him, the more I think about him, the more human he feels, and the more I see a pattern in all of us. And now what I'm not talking about is just the brutal betrayal. I'm not talking about the fact that he betrays Jesus with a kiss. I'm talking about the entire arc of his story. We don't get a lot of it in the scriptures, but there's enough there for us to find ourselves in it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about like, who people think he was and the different theories that emerge about why it is that this man who decided to follow Jesus for three years, who threw his lot in with these disciples, who gave everything to this movement, at the end betrays that movement. There's some different theories that work out about who he was and why he did this. And a lot of it has to do with the way he's named in Scripture. So Judas Iscariot, that's the way he's named. Iscariot's not a last name in the same way that modern last names are last names. So it might be like a nickname, or it might be a family name, or it might be an origin. There's a different ways of working this out, and it has to do with word roots. I'm not, not going to bore you too much with the word roots, but I'll just tell you there's a few ways that people think about it. One sort of basic theory might be that he was redheaded. 
uh, and that that's what this Iscariot sort of points to. We'll move on from that one because I don't think that's very interesting today. Um, another theory has to do with a revolutionary movement that was present during the time of Judas and the years after. These are the people known as the Sicarii. And you hear that S-I-C kind of word root there. That, that connects to this word Iscariot. It's one of the ways that people think about Judas. The Sicarii were rebel assassins who carried daggers with them and would commit these assassinations against leaders who they thought were complicit in the sort of giving their people over to the Roman Empire. And they would commit these assassinations in crowded environments. They would just sort of stick the dagger. And this is the way that they worked for the kind of change that they wanted to see. These are revolutionaries. There's been a question raised about Judas that maybe, maybe the reason he first fell in line with Jesus, maybe the reason he first wanted to follow Jesus is that he sensed there was something revolutionary going on with Jesus, that there was something subversive, something radical. There was a powerful critique of the status quo, and maybe he was excited to be a part of a, a, a movement with Jesus that would come at that status quo. The theory then goes, maybe he grew impatient. Maybe Jesus wasn't radical enough for Judas. In fact, one commentator wonders whether Judas wasn't actually hoping for Jesus to be crucified, but rather that by handing Jesus over, it might provoke the revolution that he'd been waiting for. Now, that's just one theory. There is a bit of a trick with that theory, which is that it seems the Sakari movement that people point to really found its footing a little bit later than this time. But I do think the underlying idea is interesting, that maybe the problem for Judas was that Jesus wasn't radical enough. I don't know. Uh, there's another theory that says that Judas wasn't from Galilee, and that name Iscariot would point to another part of the region in the Negev, which is the desert south of Jerusalem, where perhaps he was from, rather than Galilee, where all the other disciples are from. And in this theory, people wonder about whether Judas was isolated, was a loner in the group, wasn't included, wasn't experiencing belonging in the group the same way that the others were. And if over time that built the kind of resentment that leads people to do desperate things. Uh, lastly, there's a theory that doesn't have much to do with his name, but we know from the scripture that Judas was the treasurer for the disciples. He handled the, the purse for their little group as it traveled around. And we read in John's gospel a story uh, just before Jesus' crucifixion. He's anointed at Bethany, and a very expensive perfume is used to anoint him. And we read um, in, in some of the Gospels, the disciples generally are troubled by this because they say the money that could have been gained by selling that perfume could have been used to feed the poor. In John's Gospel, it's Judas who leverages that critique. But John gives you this little kind of whisper on the side in parentheses and says, but Judas didn't really care about giving money to the poor. See, Judas, as the treasurer, had been skimming money out of the purse for himself. So the more money that's in the purse, the more that he can take. And the, the theory goes, maybe he was just plain greedy. And he saw a chance to make a little bit of money off of this exchange. Disillusioned, uh, with an appetite for self-assurance, he just took what he could out of this circumstance. Now, I don't know which of those is true. Uh, I actually don't think it's as interesting to try to figure out which one of those is true. It's just to recognize there's a lot of different possible stories about what brings a man who had fell in with Jesus to eventually betray Jesus. Um, but there's another uh, way of coming at this that I hear in the voice of a scholar named Esau McCauley. Uh, Esau McCauley writes both as a black man in America and a Bible scholar, and so I, um, I take really seriously what he has to say as he reads these stories. And he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week about Judas. And I was really struck by what he said. This is Esau McCauley writing just this week. This tendency to reject beautiful things might explain why I've always felt sympathy for Judas. As a teenager, during Bible study class, when other people spoke glowingly about mighty David or Moses, I pondered the tragedy of Judas. Known to history as the paradigmatic betrayer, Judas was the disciple who, for 30 pieces of silver, sold out Jesus by leading soldiers to where he was the night before he was crucified. But what if Judas grew up on the rough and tumble side of Judea, where boots of Roman soldiers marching through his neighborhood filled him with rage and fear? What if he experienced the violent anti-Judaism that occupying force consistently inflicted upon his people? As a child of the South, Macaulay writes, from northwest Huntsville, Alabama, I know the ways in which constant oppression can make pragmatism and self-preservation seem like the only realistic options. For someone like Judas, Jesus offered, watch this, the dangerous kind of hope that might have challenged him to relinquish his hostilities and reawaken that thing he had long since given up, the belief in the possibility that things might be different. That could explain why he agreed to betray Jesus. Betrayal was his chance 
to return to the safety and dependability of hopelessness. I don't know how that strikes you, but I have seen over and over again, especially in the world that we are living in today, that we are retreating into hopelessness and cynicism because in some strange way, it feels safer. Cynicism feels safer than hope. Despair feels safer than hope because at least in cynicism or despair or hopelessness, you don't have to put your heart out there. You don't have to get caught naive in the world. You're not going to be made a fool of with having some kind of hope for a world that may not come about. And I, I see it at the level of the personal and the relational and the communal and the political. I think a lot of us have retreated into hopelessness because bizarrely it feels safer to us than the risk and the bravery required if we're going to hope. Now, of course, hopelessness isn't actually safe. Hopelessness is a often a kind of incremental dying in us, and not the good kind of dying to self that we just sang about, but the, the kind that we were never meant to do. Uh, hopelessness can take many forms. That incremental dying, that, that slow decision to opt out of living full-hearted in the world, that creeping commitment inside that says we're just going to resign ourselves to believe that the way things are is the way they will always be. There are many forms that that hopelessness can take, and some of them are more insidious and damaging than others, but they're all bad. For some of us, it's just that we kind of opt out of living full-heartedly by watching a little too much Netflix, numbing out just a little bit too much at night, not taking risks with relationships, not putting ourselves out there anymore. It's just the kind of small distractions that take us away from actually living full-hearted in the world right now. For others, there are more damaging, dangerous, destructive ways that we do this. It might be substances that just help us numb out because numb is a better feeling than loss or despair, and it requires less bravery than hope. Then there are the even more tragic ways that hopelessness shows up, and Judas' story is one of those. Some of you already know how his story ends in the Gospels, but in case you don't, this is what we read next in Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. I mean, that's a pretty obviously tragic ending a tragic choice that Judas had made. Um, I know some of us in this community have struggled uh, with thoughts about that choice too, and I don't preach about this to um, shame you for that. That's a very human thing sometimes to struggle with. I get that. But can we agree it's tragic? That that's, that's not the way a human life is meant to end, right? When I think about the tragedy of Judas, uh, this struck me a couple years ago for the first time. I don't think the tragedy of Judas is that he betrayed Jesus. I think the tragedy of Judas is that he didn't stick around long enough to find out that that betrayal wasn't powerful enough to end the good thing that he lamented. I wish he would have stuck around just a little bit longer to see the very thing that we see and celebrate today. I know it's Easter. Most of you know where the story is going. I get that. But just in case you don't, or in case it's helpful for us to hear how it's told again, this is from Matthew 28. This is just another page. Just turn one page in the storytelling, and we read this. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who's crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. <laughs> I always think that's kind of strange. I don't think he said greetings. I think he probably said something more dramatic, but that's the way it comes to us in the text. Greetings, he said. <laughs> they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. 
And the longer I sit with this story, the more heartbroken I am that Judas wasn't one of those brothers who was there waiting to find out that even his betrayal was not enough to end the good that God was doing in Jesus. I just sense this creeping hopelessness in us. And I, I get it, by the way, because there's a lot that doesn't feel hopeful. I get that a lot of us have personal stories where we, we look at the choices that we've made or the circumstances that we've been faced with and we find ourselves in a situation and we say, what have I done or what is my life? Is, is this all there is to it? But there's this creeping homelessness that, that says this is just who we are and where we are and we're stuck with it. I see it in marriages that are on the rocks. I also see it on the other side of marriages that have ended and the defeat that travels with people who have that chapter in their past. I see it with people struggling with substance abuse, feeling like this is just a lot that they've been dealt that there's no hope for them, that it's the verdict on their life. I see it increasingly with people who feel financially defeated, with a tumultuous economy and maybe you're strung out with too much debt, or maybe uh, all the demands on your life make it really hard for you to also provide for yourself financially, whether you're a single parent or caring for somebody else. I understand the finances are hard, but I see a defeat that runs deeper than the spreadsheet and that goes all the way into the soul. I felt the defeat that many of us were wrestling with as we saw the horrific events in Nashville, not just the shooting that was horrific enough and the lives that were lost, but also the dysfunctional, broken politics that took two black men out of the, leg two black men out of the legislature in a thoroughly undemocratic act, and it leaves us feeling hopeless. I see it in the politics that we are all worried about as we face another presidential election. And I fear that we may be giving evil too much credit. Now, in church spaces, to talk about hope is complicated because I know there are far too many church spaces, far too many religious environments, far too many people like me who stand up here in stages like this and they speak of hope as a way of not addressing what's broken or bypassing it or working their way around it, this kind of superficial hope that has nothing to do with the actual world that we are living in. I know there's too much of that happening from too many pulpits with too many guys who look, frankly, just like me, because, frankly, people who look just like me have an easier time navigating the world, and some of those broken places don't harm me the way they harm some of you, and I get that. So it's complicated to talk about hope. We need to lament, yes. We need to tell the difficult truth about the lives that we are living in the world that we are building, yes, but... Lament is something that we do on our way to hope. It's not a destination. Grieving and crying out and naming the darkness is something we must do, but it's not the only thing we do. We are on our way to hope. Uh, whether we avoid it or we just try to like hang out in nothing but the loss, we are giving our hearts over to something that cannot sustain us. Now, um, I'm not saying that like, the right kind of faith means your circumstances are going to change, right? I, I don't know that. It, it might be that some of the choices you've made or the circumstances that you have faced have created certain inevitabilities in your life, but that doesn't mean that your entire life is an inevitability, right? It, it might be that... The marriage ended either because of something you did or not. I don't, the marriage might be done. I'm, I'm not saying that like, you could believe deeply enough and powerfully enough and that a magic wand's definitely going to get waved and that things are definitely going to go back to the way things were. I'm not saying that. I, I, but what, what I am saying is that any good thing you have ever wanted or been a part of or loved, any good desire you have ever had, every good dream that you have dreamed, every good experience that you've ever had, if it was truly good, if it was actually good, it was of God. It came from God. And though good things come and go, you can't end God. That's the story. I think Judas is overcome with the feeling that his act has put an end to this story. And I wish he would have stuck around long enough to realize that even his own betrayal wasn't enough to put an end to God. And if you can't put an end to God, then you can't put an end to the good that God does. And if God's willing to raise Jesus out of that grave after a crucifixion, he could have raised Judas up after that betrayal, and he can raise us up in spite of the circumstances that are defeating us right now. You can't end God. Thank God. And if you can't end God, you cannot end the good 
that God is still capable of bringing in and through your life and in and through our world. Now, I recognize my whole argument is built on a belief in an event that we call the resurrection. And I'm not um, naive enough to think that we're all on the same page on the resurrection. I get that. Uh, we sometimes call ourselves a community for believers and doubters and everybody who's a little bit of both. Uh, because <laughs> don't read into it, you know. Um, for those on the podcast, one of the stage lights just went out, and it's doing very strange things. <laughs> if you're going to read into it, just read into it in a way that works for my sermon, please. <laughs> so I'm, I'm staking this whole argument on a claim about this event. I mean, I, I actually believe it, but we also call ourselves a community for believers and doubters and everybody who's a little bit of both. I, I want to talk for a minute about the believability of the resurrection, but before I do that, I just like hope you hear my heart in this. This is not a church that looks down on people for being in different places of belief and doubt. Some of the brightest, most wide awake people I know are atheists or people who don't believe the things that I believe, and some of why they believe what they believe that's different than what I believe is because of virtues in them because they don't go along with the group thing, because they don't just stand in a room and nod their head when an authority on stage says, believe this. They ask questions, and they think critically about the world they're in. I love that about our capacity to in interact with ideas and claims. And so this is not meant to create any kind of like supremacy for the people in the room who believe the things I'm talking about right now over and against those who don't. Um, Instagram figured out a while ago that I'm a pastor, apparently, because my Discover feed, like algorithmically, it keeps feeding me the kinds of things that apparently Instagram thinks I want to see, and then I keep watching them, which I guess <laughs> sort of <laughs> explains it. But one of the things I keep seeing in my Instagram Discover feed is, frankly, like smug white Theo bros. You know what a Theo bro is? Like a... And they are kind of smug. And they do these podcasts that they film in front of very hip sets. And they speak with a kind of self-congratulatory feeling about the fact that they've arrived at the truth in a way that suggests they think a little bit less of those who haven't arrived at their truth. I can't stand that stuff. I don't want to be that guy. But I am, I am going <laughs> to talk for a minute about why I actually think it's more reasonable to believe that something that we call the resurrection happened. Now, the details on it, the, the exact nature of what they experienced there, it is a little murky. But I actually think it's more rational to believe that something happened than that something didn't happen. So let me work with you for this just for a moment before I come back to my main point. Um, first of all, I think the most rational approach to any question is neutrality out of the gate. Like, like if you come to the question of the resurrection and you sort of pre-decided that resurrections don't happen, that's not rational at all. One of the gifts of the mind's capacity to take in empirical data is that we have this beautiful capacity to move out into the world and to take in new data and then to update our models based on things that we haven't seen before. That's a wonderful thing about being human, right? So just at a purely empirical level, I don't think there's anything enlightened or rational about deciding ahead of time resurrections don't happen because resurrections don't happen. I actually don't think that's rational at all, right? Uh, there's this sort of saying about a black swan argument that comes from some very bright thinkers, which is no amount of having seen white swans is enough to preclude the possibility that a black swan exists. But it only takes seeing one black swan once to know that they are real. There's nothing rational about seeing white swans all of your life and just saying, therefore, there's no such thing as a black swan, right? Well, similarly with something like resurrection, it, it may not be an everyday occurrence, there may not be bodies coming out of tombs in the local graveyard. I get that. But I don't think no amount of not seeing resurrections is enough to preclude the possibility of a resurrection. So let me start there. Then let's work through some of the data that some have found convincing, and I'm one of them. Uh, there's uh, one criteria called mutual attestation. Fancy words to basically say when multiple sources attest to the same basic thing, that seems more reliable than if only one source attests to that same thing, right? That's pretty basic. In the gospel accounts, we have multiple stories that tell of the resurrection of Jesus, and we also have Paul in his letters referring to the same thing among people who seem to have seen it for themselves, right? Now, some people will point out that the resurrection accounts have conflicting data in them, like different resurrection stories get some of the details different. I actually take that to be very comforting, 
right? If you get eyewitnesses together who've seen a major event and you ask all of them to write down what had happened, you're going to get differences in the details. Human memory isn't this like video camera of perfect recording, right? But that doesn't mean that those eyewitnesses are, are lying when they say something happened. It just means that it's very human for us to get some of the details confused when we talk about it, right? Frankly, if all four gospel accounts told the exact same details of the resurrection, that would be far more suspicious, wouldn't it? That would sound like people who got together and colluded to craft a story to convince you of something. Uh, there's another criteria that some point to. You call it the criterion of embarrassment. There are things in the stories told by the disciples that are embarrassing for the disciples. This is interesting. Whether it's Peter running away or whether it's in Matthew 28 where they all gather with the resurrected Jesus. And even there we read in the text, some of them doubted. That to me sounds less like propaganda and more like an attempt at telling the truth. Because, again, the people telling these very stories are telling them in a way that they include their own sort of shame and embarrassment in these stories. That moves me a little closer to thinking they're, they're doing some version of truth-telling here, not just conspiring some kind of propaganda to try to push you towards something that never happened, right? Uh, there's also this note that I find fairly convincing. Um, you know, the early church was a problem. The early church was a problem for the Jewish religious and political authorities because it was disruptive to the kind of order that they were trying to maintain. And the early church was a problem for the Roman authorities because it was disruptive for the kind of order that they were trying to maintain. So you've got this movement erupting that you don't want and you're in power and you're trying to figure out how to dismantle this movement, how to put an end to this movement. And yeah, you can persecute the leaders of that movement. You can threaten them with suffering and even death, which happens to a lot of them, which is another reason to think they really believed in what they were saying, right? But also, if, if, if the whole movement is birthed out of this idea that a resurrection happened, if the whole energy driving this thing, if the... If the inciting incident of this movement that continues to sustain it is their belief that Jesus came out of that grave, then what's the simplest thing you can do to put an end to the movement? Produce the body. Just bring that body out, and pretty quickly this thing ends, I think. So th these are things that I have found somewhat convincing. You have um, references to many large groups of witnesses in the New Testament who at the time that some of those letters were being written could actually be interrogated to see if they meant what they said when they talked about a resurrection. And then lastly, speaking back of that movement, we live in a world of cause and effect, right? Generally speaking, if you see a boulder rolling down a hill, you, you know about gravity. There's a cause pulling that, that boulder down a hill, right? If you see a boulder rolling up a hill, you think quickly if, if there's any substances in your body that are affecting your perception, right? But like you assume there's got to be some cause moving that boulder up a hill because we live in a universe of cause and effect. When you see the movement of the early church that, that runs uphill, upstream against the trends of economics, of society, of a caste system that structures hierarchies, you see the church running uphill against all of that. There's got to be some cause for it. And I actually think if, if you want to say it wasn't a resurrection, the burden is on you to theorize another cause that's commensurate with the effect. Some other explanation that makes sense of what nobody can test. And as far as I know, there isn't any serious scholar, atheist, or believer who says the early church wasn't what the early church was, which was this radical, subversive, brand new imagination for humanity that cost many of its leaders their lives. And yet something kept propelling them to do that. And I think the resurrection is a pretty coherent explanation and the only reason that's not coherent is if you decided ahead of time, well, resurrections don't happen because resurrections don't happen. All right, apologetics over. I'll take off my smug Theobro hat. Some of you think I never take that off. That's fine. Um, but don't miss what Judas missed. What, what I'm trying to say is whatever you have wrecked or ruined, whatever you failed at, whatever we have wrecked or ruined, whatever we have failed at, at the relational, the communal, even the political, what I'm trying to say is like, don't buy into the lie that it's permanent or the end of the story. Every good thing we've ever experienced, every good thing we've ever dreamed of, every good thing we've ever wanted, if it was truly good, it was of God. Everything good comes from God that comes straight from scripture. If it was good, it was of God. And if it 
came from God, there's more where that came from. And that's the heart of this resurrection. If you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this before, it just stands out to me so strikingly that when Jesus died, evil brought everything it had against him. Again, from the personal to the systemic. The personal betrayals of human infidelity, of Judas and betraying him and Peter running away from him, that's, that's us at our worst sometimes, these betrayals, right? But it wasn't just the personal and the relational. It was religion conspiring with an empire to put an end to him. It was their most sadistic instrument of violence that they used against him. Evil unloaded its entire arsenal. It exhausted everything it had. And in the showdown between evil and good, between evil and God, it looked for a moment like evil had the upper hand. But that's not the end of the story. Because after the end of Jesus, there's a resurrection of Jesus. And after the end of the good things that you have longed for and the end of the good things that we have built and then broken, there's still more good to come from a God who was able to resurrect Jesus and able to resurrect us. There's a text uh, in one of Paul's letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, it's actually probably the earliest document that we have in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection as a gospel. So 1 Corinthians is actually written before the gospels are written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when you're in 1 Corinthians 15, you are at the epicenter, at the, at the very heart of the New Testament, telling the story of what has happened. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses this interesting image. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is an agricultural term for the beginning of a harvest season where you wonder whether the fruit's going to be good and you get to taste a little bit of it. And after a long, hard season of work in the field, what you taste with this resurrection is as good as it can be. And for us to meditate on the resurrection today is for us to taste those first fruits of goodness that endures after our worst after we look at our lives or our world and we say, what have we done? And we feel the threatening permanence of all that brokenness, then we get to taste this first fruit of, of future seasons of life and goodness that are still waiting for us and for our world. Uh, we have, uh, over the last uh, many months now, been working through the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know if you caught this, but we're very clever. So today's line in the creed is actually the resurrection line. We've been saying we believe, we give our heart to, we trust. We are becoming a family of people who root our lives and our hope in this story. And today's line from the creed is this. We believe that on the third day he rose again. And that's not just people saying they pass a theology test or they have a certain view on a historical question. That's people saying we believe that after evil has done everything it can do, Love has more to say. Uh, those who will be baptized on May 7th, and by the way, that could be any of you, uh, if you want to go online and learn more about baptism and sign up, or if you want to talk to one of us about some questions that you might have, those who are being baptized are saying, we believe that even after we are buried and all of our capacity for betrayal and brokenness, even after we are laid down in a grave, that with God and with Christ, that we are somehow raised up into what happens after the end. Because after the end, after evil has brought things to an end, there's still more good, more love, more power, and more of God uh, with us and in the world. So now we thought um, we would try to taste a bit of that first fruit. Uh, rather than me like talking at you with scripture, uh, we want to um, be uh, led into a meditation on that hopeful moment from the gospels where Jesus comes out of the grave. We want to hear Paul reflecting uh, in Ephesians on what this might mean for human beings who are still longing for some of that good. And so we'll take a moment to do that. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? We'll hear readings from Scripture, and after a couple of those, you'll notice that the text turns to bold. And when you see that, uh, if you'd like, put those words on your lips, and we will say that part together as we taste these first fruits, and we hear, and we sing. day of the week, very early in the morning, 
the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me.
Amen. So may you know that whatever we've done, it is not enough to put an end to God. And that every good thing you have felt and known and longed for, if it was good, it was of God, which means there is more to come. May we stick around long enough to see the whole story. May we be brave enough to hope even while we wail and weep. May we trust that God has not given up on us or this world. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.